Hey, I'm Sam Pressler. And I'm PJ Walsh. Welcome to the In Stitches podcast, where we explore humanity and humor. Today we have Dr. Janelle Junkin. She is a good friend of mine. Uh, we partnered together really closely on the research projects that we did at the Armed Services Arts Partnership. And I was excited to invite her to this podcast because from our work together, I saw how she has had experience engaging in some of the most difficult places from post-genocide Africa to on the lighter side working uh, as a music therapist uh, with folks in hospice. That's her light work. And that's her light work. And she also had the experience working with us at ASAP to understand from a research angle, from an academic angle, the way that humor provides positive benefits and humor's limitations. She's an incredible person. Now she's basically someone who's just brings you know, humanity to people who are written off. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's an incredible, mm-hmm. it, it's an incredible journey. Yeah. So really excited to have Dr. Janelle Junkin, not a medical doctor, a PhD on the In Stitches podcast. Dr. Janelle Junkin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. You've worked with survivors of genocide and war. Mm-hmm. You've worked to support refugees integration. You work as a music therapist for children in hospice. Yeah. I have to take a deep breath just reading that. From an outsider's perspective, it's like you really like to just get into the heaviest possible shit. Like that is <laughs> Janelle's line of work. Like, can you just talk to us a little bit about how you kind of continue to go down that path into that work? Yeah. So one of the things is I only go where I'm invited. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was a decision that I made pretty early on, especially as a white American. I just wanted to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. And so I do, I only go into communities who have invited me in. And because of that, I'm open to going and um, to being involved in work wherever. Um, I don't have a lot of fear, uh, which is probably a part of everything. I'm not afraid of what could happen uh, to me uh, in situations, you know, if I travel to different countries and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think other, it's just like, I'm open to it. Um, I have connections and friends all over the world. And I value, I I think it's two ways for me, right? I value being able to bring the expertise and the knowledge and the skills that I have, but I also value being able to learn from others in what expertise and skills that they have. Mm -hmm. So I view the the work that I do as more of an exchange that I am learning just as much as I'm giving. And that's really important to me. And I think that comes across in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. But um. I'm drawn to the more crisis type of, uh, of areas. And so I'm, I'm more willing to like pursue opportunities to, to be a part of like recovery or, you know, being able just to bear witness to somebody else's struggle. Mm-hmm. Can you walk me through what the process of the day of a music therapist is? Because I've heard music, music therapy, but for someone who's listening, who's like, oh, I have no, I have no idea what that, what that entails. Yes. So I can tell you what my personal experience has been, for sure. Um, and there are a lot of different ways that music therapy can exist. Um, I also should disclose that for me personally, like I practice community music therapy. Um, so it's a slightly different approach uh, at times than maybe someone who would have like a typical like nine to five, I'm hired as a music I used to perf- I used to perform community comedy, but now it's limited to my living room. 
<laughs> as we all are <laughs> so, so Jill, maybe maybe even just starting by like uh defining what music therapy is um i know yeah. we, we have a lot of confusion around that and that sure fun. sure sure yeah so music therapy is an evidence-based approach to therapy that can be individual or group level and so it's it's using music as a way to meet therapeutic goals right so if I were treating somebody who had depression and I, as a music therapist, then, you know, I'm going to talk about how we're going to, you know, move through the depression using music as the tool to move us through that. Right. So music is the, the way that I intervene. And so it doesn't, and it, what it doesn't require is I don't, you don't have to know how to play an instrument or sing at all. Mm. It doesn't matter if you can carry a tune, like none of that matters to a music therapist. That's not the point. Like we're not there to teach you how to play an instrument or, you know, to be the best singer or songwriter or anything like that. But it's really using music as a way to facilitate health and healing growth. So a music therapist, if they're working in like a psych hospital, you know, you would see like on a, any given day when I, I did that for me, I was actually part of an entire creative arts and therapy team. So there's a music therapist, art and a dance movement therapist, and we, we co-located and worked together. For instance, and in and, and a psych hospital, I would have people with all different uh, diagnoses happening, right? And so um, they might have schizophrenia or um, bipolar or depression, um, maybe eating disorders. It just depended on, on what was happening that brought them into the facility. And so like I might have people from with all different backgrounds and, and diagnoses in one group. And so for me, oftentimes when I was working with that uh, type of setting, um, I was really focused on how do I help build community and kind mm -hmm. of awareness of, of each other, or at the very least, just an awareness of like the fact that like, you are contributing to something a little bit larger. Yeah. Or the other work I've done is um, mm -hmm. with Easter seals with special needs uh, kids. And so um, that particular site, I was running literally back to back uh, groups every day uh, with kids with um, different diagnoses and, uh, and different medical needs. So some had one-to-one -one nurses, um, some were on, uh, you know, had tracheotomies, some of them had feeding tubes. Um, and so, and then I was again, part of the team, uh, of like physical therapists, um, occupational therapists and speech therapists. And, and so really using music as a way to kind of get to some of like the developmental goals that kids needed, um, because this was a special school for, um, for kids who, who, um, mm. needed those extra developmental supports. And, and so that one, you know, I would plan like a 30 minute session um, where we would have like a hello song and then maybe a movement song and then um, a, a callback song. So uh, some of not all of my kids could speak. And so they have these things called Big Mac switches and you would I could record what I wanted them to say. And then um, hopefully with them helping them get to the intentionality. So it was a couple of things. Right. They could sing with me by hitting the Big Mac switch. Um, it was working on that gross motor movement of knowing that of being able to actually move their hand and arm to hit the switch. Um, and then there was the idea of like also including that intentionality. So them knowing cognitively that as they were hitting the switch, it was because they were filling in a space for part of the song to move forward, right? And so there were multiple things that could happen in that just that one song. Mm -hmm. right? And so you'd go through um, different things like that. And then, you know, the goodbye songs, that would be like a typical session. Um, and then when I was working as an outpatient therapist uh, in an area in North Philadelphia, um, 
I was primarily doing individual therapy with uh, teenagers and, and kids like five to 18, roughly. Um, and then sometimes I was doing family therapy as well, depending on what was happening. So I had a lot of foster care kids, um, kids who were uh, court ordered to be there, which was always a fun experience. Um, and, but yeah, so it, it's this idea of like, how do you, you're using the music as a way help people move towards whatever it is that their goal is and so for me personally I I'm a I follow person-centered therapy so I, I believe that people have what they need inside of them and so like my role as a therapist is to help them find that facilitate it grow it so because um, they have what they need and I'm, I'm just there to help them discover that I'm interested in like where you got started so can you just tell us a little bit about your background where you grew up and we can kind of go from there the first seven years of my life, I lived in different parts of the country and I was born overseas. The history is my dad was in the Air Force. I was actually born in Germany and my my brother was also born there and we're, we're actually only 13 months apart and he was real sick as a kid. And so when my brother was in the hospital and my parents were with him, I was actually at the neighbor's house and the neighbors who lived downstairs from us were from Mexico. And so they spoke Spanish mm. to me. So I would sometimes ask for things in Spanish from my mom, who would then have to call the neighbors and ask them what I was asking for because she didn't know. <laughs> that was the first three years of my life was living in Germany, speaking English at home, but also being exposed to Spanish and to food from Mexico. And then we relocated back to the to the U.S. We were in a base in Massachusetts and then we were actually back in Connecticut and then Ohio. And then my parents got divorced. We moved back to Connecticut with my, moving with my mom's parents, uh, which is where I spent the rest of my life. So I would say that has probably colored a lot of who I am and how I view and interact in the world. In high school, what really got me into this is um, I'm actually a Hobie, mm -hmm. which is a Hugh O'Brien Youth Foundation scholar. I was part of a group of uh, teenagers and young people who traveled to Malaysia, Indonesia, China, and Hong Kong. And we, we spent time traveling around and seeing the different parts of the countries we were in. But we, the main point we were over there is actually to visit sweatshops. Mm. And so we actually toured different sweatshops and spoke to the higher ups uh, and questioned them and had opportunities to just kind of see up close, like the life that I live here, live here in the United States was made possible because other people were oppressed around the world. And so that I saw and experienced in a very real way at 16. And that changed everything for me. That's awesome. And then, so part of like how I handled my parents' divorce was I got into music. I'm a flautist by training, actually. PJ is too. So I, is he? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> you don't know what you're missing, friend. <laughs> <laughs> People like to claim it in my Navy years. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I started playing when I was nine, and then I actually was performing in front of audiences by the time I was 12 and competing pretty quickly. And I was being groomed to be a performer, but I didn't love the performing aspect of it. And I definitely did not. I didn't want to be a teacher. So I didn't know what I could do with music. And uh, so I spoke with my band director and I had asked him, you know, what other, what else can you do as a musician? And he said, well, there's actually music, there's this thing called music therapy, you should check it out. And the tragic part of that story, I guess I'll share it. Mr. Peters was like a surrogate father. When I was, I guess I was 17, 
he fell down a flight of stairs at his house and, and he broke his neck and he died. Um, and yeah, it was, yeah. And I was sitting in trigonometry when I got the, when they made the announcement to the student body. So after that happened, part of my grief process was actually how can I bring like honor to his memory and the role that he played in, in me being like the person and musician that I was at that time. I pursued the music therapy and actually ended up finding out that there were two music therapists in my city. For my senior project, I was able to actually shadow them. And they worked with kids who were in the school system who had like autism or Down syndrome or uh, cerebral palsy. But I also got an opportunity to see kids who were in a group home. They weren't what's called actively dying, but they they had a shortened lifespan. So most kids weren't going to live past the age of 13, 14, 15. Mm -hmm. Probably the one who made the biggest impact on me, she was... She's, she actually, she passed probably about a year or two after I met her, but she, she was maybe 10, I think, but she was about the size of a six month old baby. Um, and, but her head was the size of like a 10 year old child. So it's, I know it's bizarre to describe, but if you can think mm -hmm. like head and body were almost identical in size, but she could shake the shakers and she just like lit up. Uh, mm -hmm. when the music therapist came in and there was music happening. And, and so I just kind of got to see, you know, kids who were forgotten in our society or maybe pushed to the side or might say like, well, do they really have any quality of life? But then really getting to see how music would bring something out of them. Yeah. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to have, be able to have people and children, especially like have the opportunity to just be people. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. If we take a step back, I think something that's so core to that story is just like this clear sense of altruism that you had from a really, really young age. Where do you think that came from? When my parents divorced, it was actually fairly ugly. And and so one of the, the things that I have just been aware of and had to come to peace out with for myself is that my dad didn't want to be our dad. Mm -hmm. And so, so as a kid, I internalized that of like, I'm disposable as a person. Right. And, and so that's something that I've always kind of like worked through and, and gone through my own therapy actually for mm -hmm. myself. And, and so I, I think for me, it's, I don't, I, I just, that's not true. I'm not disposable and neither are other people. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I think how I ended up handling that was like, no, I don't want anybody else to feel this way ever. And so like, mm -hmm. what can I do to help counter that? And that's something uh, that I know working with you, Janelle, that was so clear that doesn't just, it's not just in your therapy, but it translates to how you think about research, how you do everything. And I think what led to so much um, success and effectiveness of our research together was like that approach that it's not coming from a place of deficit, it's coming from a place of strength. Mm -hmm. And that very much is how veteran military community often views themselves, not victims, but rather people who can contribute, people who have a sense of purpose. Um, right. And, and so it's, it's interesting to hear you say that and kind of connect that to the through line within the research. Um, that's really fascinating. I, oh, yeah, that's yeah, probably go, go the it. common thread. Sorry, now that you said that, that probably is the common thread to the work that I do, no matter what community, right? So, and as a community music therapist, my, I bring, again, I bring a level of skill and expertise and knowledge that doesn't mean that I am the expert or knowledgeable about the community or the people that I'm working with. It means that I'm bringing my own expertise and skill and knowledge, but you are the expert and you have the knowledge and you have the skill about who you are and who your community is. 
And so how can we now work together um, to, to do whatever it is that you're wanting to do next? And you're right. So that, that exists as my music therapy practice, but it also exists very much in how I approach all of my research. Yeah, that's true. I do want to kind of close the loop a little bit on this intense work that you do and this work yeah. with, you know, this work with affected populations, whether it's through research or music therapy. And for you, how do you cope? Like, what do you do? Because you're taking so much in. I know with ASAP, like I needed an outlet because yeah. even if I wasn't the caregiver, I was experiencing vicarious traumatization. So like, yeah. how, how do you, how do you stay level? How do you cope with this day to day? I guess it, it varies. And I will say, so I, I do have some of my, my better days. I will say, uh, most recently, I thought I was doing fine with everything. And it turns out I wasn't because I was having an argument with the squirrel outside of my house. Was, yeah, literally, I had climbed onto the windowsill and was leaning out the window and yelling at the squirrel who was trying to get at this pizza box that was inside my uh, container. So, um, so, and some so you're, days saying I, that's not a, you're saying that's not a positive <laughs> coping mechanism? I'm saying when you're arguing with a squirrel outside, you should probably take stock that maybe you're not okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so it varies. And and so that's a funny story, but I, I will give a, a more serious one that led me to, to really know um, that sometimes I don't pay attention to my limitations around that. So I had been doing outpatient therapy uh, 2007, I think. And I had a, a young girl who had been, unfortunately, she'd been gang raped and knew who had done it, but <clears throat> wouldn't name the people uh, for fear of retribution, but had come into my office. And so like, there's all of these legal things that have to happen, you know, when that, that goes through. And unfortunately it's this like terrible situation where someone's been a victim of something and then like the system re-victimizes them because we take mm. more choices away from them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so legally there were steps that had to be followed. And so I had, I had stepped out of my office, but I had the door open and I don't know what made me turn back around. But anyways, I did. And I saw that she had picked up, I had a ballpoint pin on my desk and she had picked that up and, and had attempted to uh, shove that through her wrist. And, and so I got back in the room and, you know, did what needed to be done. And, and we got her the care that she needed. And, um, and, and my staff, you know, the staff at the facility was great. Like we talked about it. We debriefed about everything. Everybody checked in on me. I, I thought I was doing fine. I wasn't pretending that I wasn't upset. You know, I had been crying after everything was all over. And, uh, and so I'd gone home and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make a pot of tea. Uh, and I actually want to, to experience like, hearing the water boil and dropping the tea bags in and smelling that whole thing. So I put a pot of water on my stove. I walked into my living room and I sat down and I didn't turn on the TV or music or anything. I just sat down in my living room and I just stared at the wall in my house. And two hours later, I became aware of the fact that my house was filling with smoke and I had actually burned the bottom of the pot off of the pot and had caused a fire in my kitchen. So I wasn't okay. Right. Mm -hmm. I was not okay dealing with all of that. And that had, you know, this one happening, this thing that happened had unfortunately been a, a combat, just a, just the 
yeah, the top of everything of, of mm-hmm. a series of things that have been going on with a lot of my clients, unfortunately, who are just in a lot of crisis. For me at that moment, I mean, it was like, oh, I, I thought I was okay. I thought I was dealing with this. I'm like, I am, I am not okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I ended up calling other therapists that I know. I got my own therapist to, to talk through and deal with things. And then I realized for me personally, like I couldn't continue to work in, in everyday high crisis areas where I was working with kids and families who like they maybe had a reprieve coming into my office, but I was then sending them right back out into an unchanged environment and social system that was going to continue to perpetuate these crises. For me personally, I couldn't continue in that work. And so that's where I switched, uh, and which I realized when I make this next statement, it sound funny to people. That's where I switched working with Easter seals and with kids with special needs and kids who might have shortened lifespans. So that's, that's what I did. And then, you know, the next cycle up from there was I realized after doing that for a couple of years that like I was burning out as well, especially I had a situation where I'd, I'd actually had eight kids die like within one year and just, you know, that's a lot. And so I was like, I need to work with kids who are not like, who are not going to. And, and so I I actually ended up nannying for a little bit to give myself a break and to do those other things. So for me, I, 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 I have to like check in and see like, Oh, do I need to stop doing something? Do I, you know, do I need to do something differently, different for a little bit? And then personally, so again, I, I'm a flautist by training and I will say that's the one instrument I will not use with my clients. I keep mm. that for me mm. because music mm. becomes about my clients. So I might hear a song on the radio and I'm like, Oh, I'm not thinking about maybe what that's saying for me. I'm thinking of like, Oh, Oh, these lyrics are really good. I might use this with a client to kind of get at what they're experiencing. Right. Mm-hmm. Keeping my flute separate and not using it for therapy was one of the ways that I managed my own sanity and kind of having a way for me to continue to express musically what I was experiencing. I hear a lot in there, but I mean, the one thing or two things that are strong for me is that even professionals have challenges dealing with this. Yeah. And, and something I know that was super important that, but is so hard when you're working with affected communities is being able to set up boundaries. How do you just put some boundaries, some containers right. around what you're doing? Cause otherwise the need is so great. Um, the need never stops. It will consume right. your entire life. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And right. And so sometimes saying like, oh, I'm just not, I'm not going to engage with this. Mm-hmm. And it's almost being comfortable. Like for one of, one of the things that was, I finally got to, but it was really hard was being comfortable. Like I can do everything in my power, in my organization's power and someone still might die. Yep. And how do I come to the acceptance of that? without holding on to the guilt of the what ifs, um, what could I have done? And I'm grateful that I was able to like have that experience young because just, and I think veterans that I've worked with have had this from a different angle, but like coming to terms with like the randomness of death and like not having it in your control Mm -hmm. um, and being able to accept that, like that's the only way I was able to power forward with it in my own life. Yeah. And, you know, I will say like my closest inner circle of friends, um, 
don't take my shit. Right? Mm-hmm. And they don't let me be too serious about myself. Mm. And those are, those are the voices that I value the most. Right. And so it's not that they are poo-pooing or minimizing what I'm experiencing or what I'm hearing or anything like that. It's this constant call for me to be like, okay, and let's have a reality check against that. And this isn't about you. And you know, yeah. there are other things that are going on. And, oh, right, you don't actually have the power to control any of this, so you should probably step back. <laughs> so I, I think it, that helps. Yeah. And I would, I would ask, like, and what role does humor play when your friends come in? Like, how, are there any particular, like, humorous or funny experiences that you could think of when they've come in and just, like, cut the shit? Um, yeah. So I'm just thinking my, my one friend, Stephanie, she's one of the few people in my life who calls me Jay on the regular. Like I'll say something or get over on something and she'll just say like, okay, Jay, (laughs) you know, and it's just kind of like deadpan of like, all right, you're taking yourself a little bit too seriously. (laughs) And then we just like crack up. We just think that, cause I know what she's saying without saying it because they can hear it in her tone of voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's that mocking that my 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 closest friends know how to mock me in a way that like I don't love in the moment, but like I get why they're doing it, and it actually is the way forward. Mm-hmm. And so they'll they'll kind of like mock me, or and it's usually like tone of voice, and sometimes it can be like a couple of sen- like a couple of words. And it's just that re- it's that release valve, right? It's just it, yeah. it's like yeah. Go, oh yeah, you're right. All right. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like <laughs> oh, I don't I don't like the fact that you're right. And I get that you're right. And like, okay, I'm checking myself. Let's move on. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Friends do that. Friends have that. I, I call it like the quicksand technique. Like they hit you with something and you're like, oh, yeah. And a couple of days later, it kind of sinks in. You're like, all right. Um, I, I wasn't ready, but okay. I, I It's sunk in. I gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That right there. You know, I mean, and sometimes we, I need a release valve to just be ridiculous. And so, mm-hmm. you know, like I'll play Cards Against Humanity. And I think it is hilarious when we're totally out of control. And that's where I can go towards like the darker side of humor. I would never do that in my professional life. But, you know, just to have that break. There's no way that working in that space can affect you. There's no way. It's. It, I mean, it's, it's just as it's coming, there's no way it's not going to. I mean, it's like the Grand Canyon, you know, it keeps <laughs> over time. It just keeps going and going and going. And, and at a certain point, you got to step back. At a certain point, you're, you're going to blow up. You have to have a release. I mean, I've had that w- with myself working with, with veterans and doing a comparison game with in myself saying, oh, I can't complain. But who am I to complain? So I'm taking this call or I'm taking these trips. And, you know, then things start adding up. And uh, one trip when I was overseas, uh, you know, we entertained a bunch of 100 soldiers and the next day we find out most of them died you know and that that, that reality comes in and we, that was the next morning we're there to make you laugh so all these things start layering and layering layering in it, it's going to get get you like i didn't have the education to, to step back or whatever i could pretty much you know had to have my friends step in and go yo dude you gotta you gotta really you know think about yourself here for a second and um Sam and I have had these conversations because he shoulders a lot. You know, mm-hmm. he, he created a program where a lot of people, he sees a lot of changes and there's a lot of pain. So, mm-hmm. and friends are so vital in, in, in that, like to have that circle. Yeah. And when you're in there, you're going to be dark. I, sometimes I say this, I'm like, huh, I don't think we're like normal people. <laughs> I mean, we hear, we hear this a lot though. It's like being able to take that darkness and turn it into something funny 
or humorous actually gives you agency and ownership over that story. Right. I mean, I've heard that so many times with the veterans in our program. When I could take getting shot five times yeah. and this thing that's supposed to be traumatic and this thing that you're going to feel bad for me about and I could go on stage and I can make you laugh about that, now I own that experience. Right. So this is actually a good segue point. Tell us about your research in the community arts, maybe with a particular lens around play and your research on humor. For me, finding a way to be able to say like, no, this is my story and I'm going to tell it the way that I'm going to tell it and I'm going to invite you into it. That made a lot of sense to me again, like that paralleled a lot of the work that I had done prior. Mm -hmm. And then just seeing the importance and from a neuroscience perspective, just being able to say like, oh, right. It's the brain, the body, we, we need opportunities and places to kind of breathe and to relax and to rest and, and humor and creativity and the arts, you know, bring that and allow that aspect for people. And how fantastic is it that there's this organization who does this for veterans and friends and family and caregivers of veterans to be able to say like, yeah, these things happened in your life and they don't have to define who you are, but they can define how you move forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then how you do that is, is how you kind of process that. And so that all made sense to me. And it it felt like I was just continuing to work on one larger thing. I will say that one of the interesting results of the, the humor thing is I'm much more aware of, like, I never really thought of self-deprecating humor as being like a negative thing Mm -hmm. or or self-defeating humor until we got into this research project. And we're really talking about like, positive versus negative uh, humor styles. And can you just explain what those are really quickly for folks listening? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So sure, there's four and there's the self-enhancing. And so that's right. So I'm, I'm using humor as a way to kind of uh, lift myself up and, and kind of tell my story in a different way. There's the affiliative. Um, and so that's where I'm, I'm using it as a way to maybe connect with myself and with others, there's the aggressive. And then there's the self-defeating where um, you're really just, Mm -hmm. it's just this constant kind of like making fun of yourself, which is funny at times, like there's a place for that, but when it becomes like this, like that's all that you're able to do, then it it goes into like some more negative things in terms of psychology and stuff like that. So I'm I'm more, much more aware of those and how they can play out. And so I I teach public speaking at Harrisburg Mm -hmm. University of Science and Technology in the Philadelphia campus. And I had a student, he's, he's quite funny naturally. And so he kept saying to me, I want to use humor in my speeches. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. There's ways that we can build that in and we can do in, in that's hopefully effective rather than just kind of, I don't want the students to just laugh at you, right? And I realized really quickly, and I think I was more keyed into it because of the work I had done with ASAP, that he was actually leaning on the self-defeating humor and wasn't moving anywhere off of that. Mm-hmm. And I let that happen. I, I let it happen for about two speeches because I wanted mm-hmm. to see if it was a pattern or a fluke. Or, and then after the second time, I ended up pulling him aside and I said, hey, you know, I, I actually see what you're doing. I understand why you're doing it. But like you don't, I don't want you to use that anymore. I want you to try a different way to bring humor into what you're talking about. It's really cool. Yeah. And so he did. And we worked with that over the semester and um, he just turned in his final and it's actually, it's really well done. And it's not saying that he won't continue to use self-defeating humor, but it was interesting to be able to address that in a classroom setting pretty quickly to recognize it. And I would say, honestly, I only picked up on it that fast because of the work that I had done with ASAP. So I'm realizing that that question, when when you post it, made me realize that I'm, I, I'm more aware of that in different ways now than I had been. 
you know, what's interesting about that is, is as a comedian, you're always, you're kind of always on, you always have this recorder happening. You're always paying attention, like this comedy eye that's happening. And if you're punching down and the subject that you're hitting all the time is yourself, it's much like we talked about earlier, where it's going to, it's going to start chipping away at you, mm -hmm. start chipping away at you. And that affects everything. You know, there has to be a bit of a balance, you know, uh, to kind of like even it out. It's really interesting, you know, and because we had these elements of our comedy bootcamp program that we didn't understand, frankly, the humor styles before we started. But as mm -hmm. we were teaching comedy bootcamp, we accentuated the positive humor styles um, and we actually push people away from the negative humor styles. So we were always focused on getting on stage and giving yourself the win. Like we always used to say with feedback, if like we were feeling down about how people ended their set. Like the audience wants you to get the win. Like how do we have you tell the story so you get the win? And that was a self-enhancing humor style in retrospect, mm -hmm. right? When mm -hmm. people would punch down, like when we had, we had, you know, guys make fun of women and if that was just the joke, we would always say, no one wants to hear you make fun of someone who is like perceived as lower than you, right? And like, mm -hmm. They would get that feedback naturally from the class in that group-based environment. And what was happening was we were pushing away against the self-defeating styles. So we were pushing towards the self-enhancing styles. And because of the group-based environment, we were actually facilitating an affiliative humor environment mm -hmm. to have those affiliative humor styles. And so it's just so interesting now, like we're, we kind of peel back the onion on this humor research. There's something about humor research that like almost takes the joy and surprise out of humor. <laughs> Yeah. There's this innate intelligence that we have around how could humor be healthy and how could humor be harmful? Mm -hmm. And it does bring me to another question for you, Janelle. What is humor at its best? And like, what do you see humor at its worst? When I think about humor at its best, yeah, I view it as a way to help process or, or name or bring awareness to something that's going on either in, in the personal life or maybe in societal, you know, something. And, and to be able to say like, oh, I don't have any control over all of this. And I'm just going to like, this is what it is. Right. And, and so like, I, I would say like, that's some of the, the things that I look for when I'm looking, when I see like quality type of humor. Um, and so even if it, it dips into self-defeating, uh, because sometimes it can, and, and to be totally honest, I think there's a place for that at times, right? I think there are places to have self-defeating humor. I think from a psychological standpoint, it's when I see that as like the only place that we go to, mm -hmm. or it's used as a way to avoid dealing with other things. So I, I'm just going to focus on this. You know, it's like, and you hear like comedians talk about like the low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. I think like that self-defeating humor can be like that low hanging fruit of like, I don't want to deal with these other things. So I'm just going to stick right here. And so like, I would say it's the use of all of them, right? You're self-enhancing, you're affiliative, you're aggressive and you're self-defeating and knowing kind of when, mm -hmm. uh, when to bring those out and, and when not to, I think that's probably the the healthiest that I would mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. it's, when you, in, it's when you get stuck in one and you're unable to kind of maneuver through the others that I, I think that that that's when I would start to be like, Ooh, I think something's going on here. We're talking in the middle of, we're still, most of us are on lockdown with coronavirus. Right. And think a lot about how people like went to Netflix and like went to Tiger King when this right. first started. And that was 
an avoidance tactic. That was escape. That was avoidance. And we've talked about that was adaptive in the moment, like to just get away from the reality and the uncertainty and the fear, like you could take your mind off of it. Yeah. But when that lasts over time, right, that's when it gets. Right. Right. When you get stuck in that and then all you are doing is avoiding and like, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid dealing with whatever it is. Then I, that, that's when it becomes maladaptive. Mm. And that's when it's like, okay, there, there's now we've got some problems. (laughs) Right. I want the guy, I want the guy who's stuck in humor to to talk. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way that you guys are, are, are breaking down uh, humor. To me, as a professional comedian, what I always looked at comedy and basically what a laugh is, is it's just a surprise recognition that we're not alone. Mm. So when you get a really, really good laugh and you just, everyone leans in, you know? And, right. Right. and to go into the studying of comedy, to think about studying comedy, I, I, gotta, I, I hate to give this quote to somebody, but uh, no, years ago, I heard Mel Gibson talk about filmmaking. <laughs> All right. I hate to say about filmmaking. I'm bringing up all the bad stuff, but, um, but he he was talking about filmmaking and he goes, I can't enjoy a a film anymore because I know all the tricks, you know? And he's like, so if I see something that I don't know, I just pick up the phone. I call somebody. People aren't taking what it's called now really. But, but back then, like, and I was just like, wow, you get that with comedy. And this is where I, I, this is where I'm very appreciative of Sam's friendship and what he created because for somebody like me, who's like down the road and I've been doing comedy, uh for a while it's it's one of these things where i get to see the excitement i get to see the community i get to see the breakdown and practice of comedy and the tools of it that i just kind of let go and then what you're doing is when i started comedy when i was really really hungry we used to do shows at um at hospitals and cancer wings for kids you know and i would go and do them because i just wanted stage time and like when I'm listening to your story and everything that you do, I'm sitting here going, I'm more qualified to do those shows now and I'm not doing them, you know? So yeah. that's what I get to appreciate about what we're creating here and getting to talk to somebody like both of you, where it goes, okay, it makes me quite, it makes me look back and go, okay, look, there's other things you can do with this craft that I've, that, that I've created and to see what you're doing with music in that same place. It's, 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 it's very, very interesting to me. Now, if you're somebody like from the working class or somebody who's like a plumber or electrician or something like that, and you, we have all these programs, can you sum up why it's important for them to contribute to something like that when all of a sudden they can go down to a food bank? Is there a way short that goes, this is why this is vital? There is there in all your research, narrow it down to like a pitch of like, this is why the arts is important to contribute and to keep going. Yeah, and I would, I would expand on that to say uh, for both plumbers and people of all walks of life uh <laughs> i was really talking about my dad's a plumber what uh, i thought you were doing like a job mccade like joe the plumber thing oh no no no, no. <laughs> no, no that, that's that's why i ended up a field medic and a dental technician in the navy because the other job they offered me was a uh, hole technician and i said what's a hole technician and they said uh it's a plumber i said my grandfather was a plumber my uncle's a plumber my dad's a plumber i'll go to teeth <laughs> that's awesome I know it's a big question. I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. Yeah. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to broaden it to just like the act of creating. Mm-hmm. So engaging in the act of creating is necessary to your body is eating to sleeping to meeting your basic needs. It is a basic need. That's great. I love it. Yeah. I think that's awesome. So I think it's, we can get to our closing question. Um, that, uh, I've enjoyed asking, uh, 
so far on my one podcast that I've done. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. You've done all this work. How do you want to be remembered? Yeah, it's funny. I uh, have been, this this question has, has haunted me a little bit because <laughs> I, I would say the first, my first gut response is I have no idea. I've never actually really thought about it. Mm. But having thought about it some, she saw she cared. Mm. Wow. Mm. Damn. It's a showstopper. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Oh, we're going to have to change the last question, Sam. She just freaking slam dunked that son of a bitch. (laughs) Oh, my God. Damn. All right. The other thing I could say. No, 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 no. (laughs) Edit, edit, edit. (laughs) (laughs) Will you close with the strongest line? That was super, super powerful. That was awesome. Dr. Janelle Jumpkin, thank you so much for joining the In Stitches podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was fantastic. Man, just fascinating. Uh, It's fascinating the number of avenues and uh, projects she's thrown herself into selfishly. And then also eye-opening to me, and which I find incredibly interesting, is how qualified she is. But how she says she can only come in and compliment. She can bring all these skills in, but it's the community. They work together. Because yeah. there's so many people who are experts who are like, I got all the answers. And she's just like, no, I've got skills. And we're going to work on the answer together. That mm-hmm. blew me away. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's um, there's a wisdom in that, in understanding that like people already have what they need. How can I just play a role in facilitating facilitating it or accentuating it or bringing it out further and i think what's more impressive is her or not but differently impressive is her naming the boundaries and her limitations and recognizing Mm -hmm. that she cannot give infinitely um or else that could start to hurt herself And, and actually being so vulnerable with us about Hey, like, this is when I've gone too far. This is how I've realized I've gone too far. And this is how I've dialed it back. And like, even me as a practitioner, someone who has, you know, a background in kind of both clinical and community mental health work, um, I need to take time for myself. I need to draw, I need to draw those boundaries. Um, And for me, that's the lesson learned is like, if she can do that in uh, the intensity of her work, if she can make sure that she has separation, for other folks who are giving so much, you can do that too. Well, we couldn't have done our second episode of In Stitches if it were not for, again, our amazing guest, Dr. Janelle Junkin. So Janelle, thank you for joining us, for sharing so openly, for teaching us a few things new. Um, And this wouldn't have happened without our uh, incredible executive producer, David Bobber, who's really sees all these episodes through from start to finish. So thank you, David. That's the end of episode number two, Sam. Right. Hopefully it's not the last one. <laughs> I don't think so. Sorry, I, I hope not. I don't know why I responded that way. <laughs> all right. Well, thank everybody else. Thank you, everybody that's listening. Uh, do us all a favor. Follow us on all the InStitches social media platforms. We're on everything. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, we're on Friendster. Yeah. We're <laughs> 
And do us a favor. Take this episode, share it, like it. Go to uh, InStitches and leave a comment, and please leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening. This has been InStitches.